0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people in Nordic tech organisations realise their potential. Our goal is to develop deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. I am Shania Oljokupa from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I am your host. Today I'm joined by Boris, who is the head of design at Eda, Ed Axel who is a manager of UX and design at Avanza, Daniel, who does research by design at Electrolux, and Roberto, who is a lead UX UI designer at Ericsson. And we're here to discuss placing users at the of design processes, why it matters. But before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. I'd like to know who you are and what you do. So Boris, do you want to kick us off?
1: Uh, yes, thanks, uh, uh I'm Boris. I've been in design, I know, all my working career in different uh, positions, starting with, like, visual designer. And I wouldn't say worked my way up. I worked my way around <laughs> different uh, other positions. Uh, and now I'm head of design, but still uh, messing around in Figma as well. So uh, head of design at... Uh, we are growing slowly, uh, so scale up, and then editor where my role is to, to I don't know, um, see a bit into the future and see what's uh, coming next, make sure that uh, that's the good usability in the product and uh, that we fulfill the needs of the users uh, with design as well. Uh, and also contributing personally doing design and, coaching and the other designer. On. Um, I will stop there.
0: Yep. No, thank you, Boris. Axel, do you want
2: to go next? Yes. Hi everyone. Um, my name is Axel. I work as a UX manager at Avanza, which is a Swedish um, bank focused on savings and investments. So I'm um, part of the management team for for, um, design as a competence at Avanza and I also work uh, within two of our product areas doing uh, core experience and personalization as well as growth and activation being my main focus. I've worked in design for, um, I guess, it's around 13 years now. Um,
3: nice to be here. Talk to you. Yeah,
0: definitely. Great. Thank you, Axel. Daniel, do you want to go next?
3: Yes. So I'm Daniel Mesa. I work in research by design at Electrolux. And in particular, I lead a discipline called Fit, fill, and Finish that is basically about investigating the user perception in the sensory experience and how this relates to the user's quality expectations. And I'm really passionate about design, leadership and research. So these are my my main topics. I'm very happy to meet you all today and the audience interested in in the topic.
0: Yeah, thank you, Daniel. I feel like it's gonna be a really interesting conversation. Roberto, do you want to go next?
4: Yes, hello. Nice to meet you, everyone. So my name is Roberto. I work as a consultant right now as a lead UX UI designer at Ericsson. And My background is a bit varied. Uh, I started in mid-80s with coding demos and doing graphics on the Commodore 64. And then I've worked with the development of 2D and 3D real-time graphics, including creating a VR system in the early 90s. I've also freelanced with photography for many years and uh, teaching photography. Um, My interest in design has also been parallel to all of this. So, anything I worked with programming has always been like the visual part and in the interaction with the users. So, it felt like a natural thing to go over more into UX design. I've also started a brand Lumetoro for 3D printed jewellery 10 years ago, so I've been teaching and been invited to talk about my design processes from Autodesk in, to go different countries and, and talk about that. So I enjoy sharing knowledge and learning new things. So yeah, that's a bit of a background.
0: Yeah. Thank you for that, Roberto.
2: If you would like to speak on the future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening. And I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Now
0: that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to the topic in focus. So each of you have brought one question or statement on the topic placing users at the heart of design processes, why it matters. So as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation as well. Boris, let's start with your question. So the question that Boris brought to the podcast was, for us designers, this is the core of what we do. Users are even in our title ux designers for example but how can we make this perspective be in the center of the whole organization so boris where did this question come from
1: yes it is like it's really easy to isolate design uh, to a certain area or or group and we designers are also good at <laughs> try to keep that like we are designers we own design Uh, So there is kind of a gap then between uh, us designers that have like the user in our hearts and do everything for them and the rest of the company that are driving by agile or some other methods when it's measured by speed or sales when it's measured, I don't know, how how much you sell sell and so on. So it's like different parts of the same organization are driven by different methods and ideologies. And it's, for me, it's a bit hard, uh, even if like uh, in a product team. How do we fit design thinking into the agile manifesto, uh, the year cards, and so on? So that's something that I've been struggling, but on, in different companies, the same issue. Uh, so that's why I brought it uh, to this group. And see yeah. what uh, people have thoughts about that.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's a really good question. I think hopefully we should get some good insights on this. Axel, do you want to start?
2: Um, yes, sure. Uh, really good question. Um, I think I think you said it at some point, talked about inclusion. I think collaboration and inclusion is, is key to uh, um, solve this problem or move in, a, in the right direction for it. Uh, A couple of things that we have been doing to make sure that um, more people uh, can empathize with our users is to make sure that we, when we do user research, when we meet with customers, we try to always have um, spectators rooms. So uh, the ability to listen into uh, interviews, both for um, like... um, senior management uh, groups and roles but also for um engineers and the, the the full product team so that it's not only a designer or a researcher doing research on the side and then they come back with their sort of conclusion and insights and uh because the problem when you do that is that the the you don't get the full side it's it's always a different thing to actually watch someone use your product and hear someone talk about their needs and uh, observe behaviors uh, first in first person um so i think doing that and try to um spread the knowledge in that way is is really um is a really effective way um but also i mean not everyone can always be part of everything uh, so then actually making these conclusions of research and uh having good um channels uh, for spreading uh, those is also uh, a really good thing so we have we have a slack channel called um, customer insights where we share all the uh, findings that we do in the ux research team Uh, and we also do quarterly um, customer insight presentations where we uh, make a a summary of what type of research we've been doing this quarter and what we uh, what we've learned um, from our users so Trying to always um, spread the knowledge and make sure that um, uh, customers stay top of mind for as many people as possible within the organization.
0: Yeah, really good ideas there as well, Axel. Daniel, What's your take
3: on the question? Yes, very interesting question, Boris. Uh, from my perspective, as researcher in design, I think that um, the key to influence organizations is that the disciplines that are in charge of bringing the user perspective, we need to find a way of working more strategic than that only tactical. I, I explain a bit what I how I see that difference. When when there are functions, for instance, that are taking like expertise-based decisions only. This is typically going from one project to another, being very tactical in short term, finding like a quick solution, but this this lack like a deep understanding to to represent the user needs in longer term. When instead the functions are taking more like research-based decisions, this gives like a more holistic perspective towards the users and it's easier to, to make connections that can lead to, for instance, Uh, creating portfolios or uh, systems. So literally something a bit more long-term and therefore more strategic. So I think that I agree with the statement that we already as designers have the users in the core of what we do. But what we need is a way of working to get in the core of the organizations by demonstrating how this brings value to to the business. And that's the way to, to influence it more strategically.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Daniel. Really good view of the question there as well. Roberto, do you want to add your answer?
3: Yeah,
4: I think those are very interesting questions. So I'll try to sort of complement that. Uh, there are a few different things I, I, I see here. Uh, I see as part of my role as, as a lead UX designer is to sort of uh, get the teams and stakeholders to learn more about the purpose and benefits of of UX. So so a lot of the time I spent is educating, and and education is about communication. Uh, And of course, different organizations might have different needs or work in different ways. So you sort of cannot enforce ways of working. You need to find what works best for for those teams that you're working with. Um, And there are Things uh, we're talking about agile and things, uh, things there. How to in, incorporate that? Uh, there are these uh, Google design sprints. That's one way of including the full team. So, so you work with design sprints. I've worked with that at King uh, for one of the Candy Crush games before. And uh, I came up with some ideas that I've implemented that could improve on that because I think there there are some benefits on how you can do that, but you can even do that on a a one-day to a one-week sprint. So that's one way of working. This might not work in all types of organizations if they are bigger or or depending on how they work with different teams. So, So... Something I'm currently doing at Ericsson is that we have these virtual FICAs on Fridays that all all the four main development teams plus stakeholders and some others are invited. And uh, during these FICAs, we usually do demos and I very often do uh, presentations about the UX work we're doing or if we're presenting a new feature, then explaining the UX work that went behind it and why we did it that way. And I've just now started doing small, like, bite-sized UX insights that I'm presenting uh, on these Fridays when we don't have other things. So I think it's about educating the the organization. And I always try to think that uh, I want everyone in the team, no matter if they're testers or developers or or stakeholders, that everyone can can contribute to UX. So even if my role is uh, the UX designer in this case, I want everyone to think about it. And if they understand the purpose of what they're doing, then that will also mean uh, that developers will be able to to make their own decisions if they get stuck in something that might not be clear. So if they understand the context, and I usually also, if developing a feature, I usually try to have like a longer one, two year perspective on on features that we're going to develop so so that they see where we're going in the future uh, approximately. But now we're doing this subset of this design. Then they can avoid painting themselves into the corner. If they had known that, okay, next iteration or next version, we might add this feature. So I think it's about educating and, and making it inclusive for for all the team members. So everybody has, everyone is a user in in some sense and can give feedback and uh, see that they can contribute. So I've noticed that uh, I get more and more people coming with ideas and feedback and it's always good to hear that
0: yeah really good points there Roberto and good answers from everyone there about research strategy education Boris do you have any other final thoughts after hearing everyone's answers uh,
1: yes uh, good uh, suggestions and uh, I agree totally that spreading the word of the value of design and also back to you Daniel the business side of design that it's like not just nice to have and a uh, nice packaging of features or the product uh, that it but that it actually creates value and, and, and joy and it's like mostly why people are using or buying the product is like much of like design so it's not just the, the features or something like that it's just the, the whole experience uh, and we need to be better at that to borrow the the ear of, of leaders and so on uh and also better at presenting that and showing it i don't know if it's like in numbers or charts or something like that that's that it actually shows that it's a valuable part of the business and that's something that we should be put at the end of the process just before everything is shipped to the market Uh, uh, just put a small uh, nice uh, package around it but that it's include in the whole process. So I'm really happy with all the answers and I will stop talking and give uh, the word back to you, Shania. Yeah,
0: no, thank you for that, Boris. Like I say, really good question as well. I think we've got some really good answers there. So moving on to the next question. So Axel brought the question of placing users at the heart of design processes, everything for us designers. It's what we've been trained to do, and it's source of our religion. But is it possible to become too user-centric and end up building exactly what our users want and crave, but perhaps not what they need? Where does strategy come in, and how can we use a user-centric mindset whilst also pushing for a change in user behavior? So, Axel, where did this question come from?
2: Um, Yeah, so it it requires a bit of context. Um, So to start off, uh, uh, Avanza that i work at is a very um customer centric company in a lot of ways and like uh, driving customer satisfaction is actually our main uh main top one goal uh and we sort of have the strategy where if we make things that our uh, customers love that will also in the end be good for business so we don't we don't start with the business and then try to uh Include the the user side of it, so that's good in a lot of ways. But I also see us making a lot of decisions based on what our users uh, um, think of what we do. So when we release something new, we always measure customer satisfaction based on um, like the the first impressions of a, um, of the new feature uh, and um, Sometimes we miss the uh, strategic side of things. So maybe the users, uh, we got low customer satisfaction and we say, oh, no, no, we need to change something because the users don't like it. But we tend to miss the side of like, what what were we actually trying to, what was the business objective here and what were we actually trying to achieve? Did we see a change in user behavior that we can measure some, in some sort of way? So we've been relying quite a lot on uh on uh, qualitative research and uh yeah, again customer satisfaction as a uh main kpi uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm yeah i'm interested to hear your thoughts about um that yeah
0: that's a really good question there or is kicks up uh
2: yes uh
1: very good question and uh, <laughs> i was just thinking about uh, this as well uh that is can can this be a bad thing and um, the simple answer is yes. Uh, if you have just one thing that you measure against, it will always end in a bad place that you like optimize, optimize for that. And you don't know when to balance to something else. Um, and I also see me as in my early career where, where I was just like, I would do everything for the user. Like it was my religion is maybe the right word, but like I saw that it's my, my, Purpose of (laughs) being—it's just like make this as good as uh, for the user as possible. And I saw so everyone else that was like not understanding this or making uh, have other priorities. I saw them either as obstacle or almost as a enemy that they destroyed uh, a user experience. Uh, And that led to quite many conflicts when like I was like I was so convinced that I was. Uh, I was right (laughs) the the, the user was like, we have to do this for the user no matter the cost. And of course, it matters, the cost, (laughs) how much time it takes, what's the business value and so on and so on. So we need to broaden our perspective, not uh, losing the sight of the user experience, but also include the other parts like uh, devs and mostly business. What is the expected return of invest for this product or function or something like that? What value does it bring to the user and to the business? And those two must be in, in the balance. Because if you just focus on the users, then suddenly you, you are not doing so well financially. And then you have to lay off and usually the, the designers and the your products is uh, getting worse and worse. So you are actually not doing yourself a favor, <laughs> but actually are contraproductive to the whole thing. So and this whole talk is that we need to make sure that the user-centered focus is also balanced with other stuff uh, or other priorities, mostly business, also tech, and so on, and of ramp. No, really good answer there, Boris. Thank
0: you for that. Bertil, do you want to go next?
4: Yeah, sure. Uh... I love that the uh, that the question is about if we if, if we can do too much for the users. <laughs> uh, it's usually a challenge uh, for many to be able to to do what they want. Uh, uh, I think uh, it's I see myself or my role uh, with us design is balancing the needs of the business, which is of course driving uh, things with the users and what their needs and input it and also the developers so what can they do so I I don't design something that would take five years to do if I understand with my background in program I can understand what features I can design which would be easier quicker to do so that it might not be the optimal solution but it might be the most pragmatic uh, solution moving forward so and, and uh, a, in the case I'm in, we have a lot of users working in a lot of different ways around the world. So there's, it's basically impossible to please all users. If you try to create a product that pleases every user, then it's, it becomes really bad for everyone. So, so uh, I think it depends on, on, on the sort of product you're working on. If uh, In some cases, it might be better to, to, to ignore some users so that they can find a product that makes better sense for their needs than and then trying to please everyone also so and that goes together with the business needs. so what does the business really want to do with this and and sort of then make the best user experience based on on those ideas um, i hope that sort of uh, gives another perspective on, on this uh yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll
0: no, definitely. Really interesting answer again, Roberto. Thank you for that. And I'm sure Axel will give his views on all, everyone's answers afterwards. But Daniel, what's your take on the question?
3: Yeah, I think every all of us have been in that situation at some point. And it has, it's something we have all experienced. I don't think that becoming too user-centric is necessarily an issue. As far as we take with a pinch of salt the inputs that we get from the user about what they want... And complement them with other types of research that, that we can bring different perspectives and look at it through different lenses. So we can do a better evaluation of the inputs that we collect and reflect as designers what is really the right thing to do. I think, for instance, it's very important to consider foresights and trends so we don't spend too much time focusing on today's needs and today's context but also understanding how this might change in the future because you mentioned there changes in user behaviors and i think at the end of the day changes in behaviors they're usually uh they, they usually correspond to macro trends out there that go a bit beyond the actual product and the basic functionality you need from it and they're following certain rules certain norms certain values from society that they need to this product needs to be in line with And we as designers need to know them so we are able to influence them. So I think it's like a sweet spot between these two, between understanding the user needs and also the changes in behaviors that we can also uh, initiate and, and, and push for. Yeah,
0: definitely. Great answer there, Daniel. Axel, after hearing everyone's opinions and insights and answers... Have
2: you got anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, thank you for all those answers. Really good stuff. Um, I think the part about that I think all of you mentioned about not optimizing for one thing is is really good. That's uh, always going to be an issue if you just run with one metric or one um, key result or whatever. Um, so having a mix of those and making sure that we have Uh, our users in mind we have the business in mind and we have uh, our strategic direction in mind i think those as long as you have those three perspectives you're you're in a pretty good place Uh, i think it's also interesting about what you mentioned about roberto that you can't please everyone Uh, i think that's one issue that we can have sometimes that we um we tend to listen to the users with the loudest vo- voice uh, and then you end up building something that uh, maybe in the beginning was intended to uh, widen our product in attracting new users. But you end up building something that only attracted uh, existing users because they have such a loud voice in this and um, people will listen to what uh, what they want and their needs. Uh, so that's, that's something that we always need to keep. In our mind um, and sort of stand our ground when we have taken a decision in the beginning of, of the strategic direction of the product um, so yeah thank you for for all those um, very interesting uh, reflections
0: yeah definitely and thank you for bringing that question to the podcast as well so moving on to the third question daniel brought the question to the podcast user data can be used in different ways and for different purposes depended on the stage of the design process. Could you share some examples from your experiences with it? So, Daniel, where did this question come from?
3: Yes, Shania, I was very inspired by the title of the podcast and also by the variety of, um, of backgrounds that we have in the panel today. So I was very interested to also hear what from your different industries, what kind of approaches you have to user data and when in the design process it comes. Uh, that's why I mentioned at the beginning, I work in research by design. And for instance, we are four different disciplines, research disciplines, and all of us we have the user in, in the core. For instance, if we have Futures and foresights that is about working with trends and collecting all these signals out there that is telling us what is influencing our users' lives today and what can influence us late, what can influence them later. Uh, We have UX research, understanding needs, goals, context when people interact with our products. That's more of user research side, but also how easy to use and intuitive they find them. And that's more the usability side. My own part that is about investigating user perception, sensory experience, quality expectations, as I mentioned before. And the fourth one is experience innovation that is taking all this in insights from research and translating them into experiences so all of us are constantly working with the user and I personally wanted to share a couple of approaches that I use with my team in the discipline in will Finish the one we the, the one I lead and it's uh, working with the voice of the consumers that is how we use star rating reviews and user perception research. That is how we test uh, first impressions. So I'd like to share a bit about that and also hear your own experiences or also what you think about these ones. Um, I want to give maybe a short explanation of each, and then leave the the forum for the rest. So I'd like to start with the first one, voice of consumers. And this is the very first thing we do when we go and read what people are saying out there about their experience of the products we have in the market. And um, for us, uh, we know that reading uh, star ratings is becoming a key part of the decision making process because once you have a need for a product, one of the first things you do is that you read reviews and you get influenced by strangers that are talking about their experience, their reality, and that's building up your expectations and once we collect all this it's not just interesting quotes we can really use this information to on to map how the experience is what are the topics that are more mentioned what for instance um, are motivators or wishes that people have and use that information as part of the design process so um, we know for instance that if you have like a negative review And that is a scoring four or five stars. Okay, definitely there's a distractor there, but the overall experience was good. Somehow the product was not so bad. But on the opposite, if you have the same negative review and one or two stars, that's a deal breaker. That consumer is not coming back. So we are not in design. uh, We should not be that worried for kind of how much is the star ratings, but really doing something with that information, why the ratings are as they are and bring that in. And the other topic is, uh, we call it user perception research. And um, it's actually very linked to psychology, which I know is your background, Shania. And it's a very interesting topic, but a bit underestimated, where we focus more on what people notice, how they react to what they notice, and how they act based on the way they, they, they reacted. And normally the ways of investigating user um users is very qualitative, but this is actually something a bit more quantitative. So you can define targets with it, but also you can actually understand how people feel, what they interpret, associate, and bring that data in. You can use it in many stages of the process. At the beginning if you want to get an idea how products are experienced today and competitors or later when you have some design and you want some direction. The end, this is actually my favorite part, is when designers get challenged by stakeholders that share their concerns a bit late and maybe they're not so sure we're doing the right thing. And that's when we come here with research and with data to answer to them. It's the best way to answer them. I think this part of investigating user perceptions now to end and leave the the space for the others to comment is growing more and more because many design professionals independently of the years of experience and more ask today to bring data to justify that their proposals, their inputs actually uh, are the right thing to do. And this is when research, you know, in my, uh, for, for instance, is a good thing to bring data to, to the table. I'm very curious to hear also the stories from the rest.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that question. And thank you for providing the context around that as well. Really excited to hear everyone else's experience with user
2: data so axel do you want to start yeah sure really interesting question and i, I would actually like to hear a bit more about the user perception re- perception research i think that's a really interesting concept and i uh, if you want to share some more details about how you actually do it practically later daniel that would be interesting um i think um, I think it's good, as you were also saying, that to sort of divide the research into at least two different categories where you have the generative or explorative research where we actually try to uh, dig deep into user behaviors uh, and needs to sort of influence what what we're supposed to do with our products on a very high general level. And then you have the more... Um, uh, I lost the word, Um, evaluative uh, research, where you're actually testing how something, when you have an idea, you're testing how that uh, idea performs. So um, I think I'll talk a little bit more about the evaluative side, because we've been, at Avanza, we've spent the past year uh, moving towards Teresa Torres' methodology regarding continuous discovery, um, where we have, uh, I mean, there are different aspects of of what she's, of that methodology, but one of them is that you should do research uh, more often than what we're used to. So every week you meet with users to make sure that you're uh, evaluating and testing those small design decisions that you make along the path. So when we design a product, we make decisions every day and if you do the more traditional research you uh, tend to uh, skip the evaluation until you come towards the end of the product when you're when you're done and then you do some user testing and uh, maybe it's too late to change some things because you've already uh, gone too far with it so um, I think that has been really interesting for us we've um, used um compare and contrast tests quite a lot where you uh expose the user to um, two or three different alternatives for design to uh get some some interesting insights on like how they perceive um those different options um and um yeah i think i think that's that's a good way for us but uh what what we've um what's important to not lose track of is that you actually do those uh like (laughs) the the more classic user testing towards the end also because i think what we've uh what what we lost a little bit when we moved to continuous discovery is that we uh we relied too much on this quick research that we do continuously and then we uh, sort of stopped doing the the more elaborative, evaluative research towards the end of the, of, a, of the product cycle when we when we have a a, a good prototype that we can actually get some uh, final insights to in the, on the usability side of it and so on. Um, but yeah, a few a few thoughts on the topic. Really interesting question. Yeah,
0: and really interesting answer there as well. I know there there's a few head nods of some things you were saying. So. A great answer Bert do
4: you want to go next uh yeah it's a it's a difficult question I would say and a very interesting answers and I, I think it's uh trying to make some writing some notes while I'm listening here and uh, I think it depends uh, it can vary quite a lot depending on what type of product you're working on uh so there is a, a, a difference if it's a completely new product you're launching first time or that that hasn't existed before in the market then you have all, everything with learnability and and, uh, and seeing where it will fit if it fits the ideas you had in mind or suddenly some users come up and use your product in a completely unintended way but that maybe becomes the big part of it so so it, it can be very uh different from a product that that has existed like if you're doing a I don't know, vacuum cleaner now that we're talking here uh, for, for many years that the product that existed and, and you know sort of the base uses and you're sort of polishing and trying to uh, come up with new battery ideas and so on. So it's uh, yeah, it's hard to giving an answer without knowing more specifics, I would say. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I feel like it would be really nice to meet <laughs> like a few hours to talk about these things. <laughs> Uh yeah, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, it was interesting once you mentioned access also about this con- uh, this continuous discovery and, and uh, something, it depends on the product and the team and sort of deadlines, what you can do and, and the maturity of a company and the teams. So in some cases, I've been able to do, uh, create mockups uh, from wireframes to maybe fi- finer uh, prototypes uh, and try these out with uh, do usability testing with the users and figure out things long before uh, we do any development on this. Uh, and there can be creative ways of doing that even for physical products. Uh, so you can try those out. Uh, but the approach will vary quite a lot depending on what you're doing. Uh, what type of product? Um, and I think, uh, yeah, uh, I think you bring up good points about uh, how we need to use the data from the research to, to sort of have that guide more than our opinions, and how that is probably one of the stronger ways of uh, presenting that to stakeholders and, and getting ideas across. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's always the challenge of this quantitative research and qualitative. Uh, research because it can lead you astray uh, so so there is always a, a, a gamble in the process so to speak but of course I see by using the different principles of design thinking and use design you sort of aim to minimize those risks uh, and try to have a, like a scientific perspective and, and try to rely on data and of course you need to understand the psychology behind it as, as you're mentioning to to not fool yourself because yeah you're the easiest person to fool. So if you love your idea, you, you, it's uh, it's easy to try and, and uh, cherry pick uh, data also. So so you have all these aspects also. So yeah, I, I'm not sure I can give a specific answer without <laughs> going into details sort of try to, to, to give some uh, feelers uh, around it that might give some ideas. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no.
0: that yeah. no, as opposed to this topic, there's so many different things you can talk about. You could probably talk about it for hours with different ways you could approach this topic. But I think so far we've gotten some really good answers. So Boris, do you want to add your answer on your thoughts on this question or share your experiences, shall I say? Uh,
1: yes, and uh, I always wanted to work more with data uh, unfortunately, I worked as a design consultant uh, for a long time, and then you don't. The companies don't want to give you the data, and then I worked on quite small companies where the maturity wasn't there, or the right now we we have too few customers to make the data reliable. So there is a I don't know um, a step where you need to make uh, or, or have like uh, certain. Um, i don't know at least users that uh, where the quantitative uh, data will be a good thing Uh, otherwise always the qualitative you don't even need to have users and and can start researching for for like interviewing and so on and of course the combination of those two are always the best like what is happening and why is it happening and get those stories Uh, but I re- reacted on the other thing you said about this um, star rating. And uh, that's, I see those two as a different, even if like the unaware data collection when people don't even know that they are tracked, like using websites or apps, and you can know like what are they actually doing. Uh, and that could be quite trustworthy in my opinion. But going to rating, that's like told to the other ball game where like okay, what people are rating. Uh, I usually am really bad at answering those uh, like getting mails from uh, companies asking me how do you like this and that product and like uh, I don't know and I I don't bother. Or if I'm really happy, I answer. Or if I really disappointed, I answer. So it's that's like a huge gap missing of people that like don't know what to say or don't have time so it's like those extremes that that uh, gets to to say something and also like for me maybe three stars is quite okay for other one three stars is really bad and now when i get like people want to get evaluation or, or like uh, stars on their podcast they don't ask for three stars it's like five stars directly like and for me that's that' it needs to be an awesome podcast. Like wh- why do I have the scale from one to five? It's If the five is the only thing I can add. Uh, and of course, if I take my time to actually rate something, it's actually because I want to support it and then I give five stars. But then there is like no use of the stars. It, it's better with the Netflix that went from five stars to thumbs up and thumbs down. Because then they are so extremes. There is no like middle thumb or something like that. It's just like I like it or I don't like it. And it's much easier to take that approach instead of like, okay, what are four stars or not? Uh, and I also a bit scared of this rating system. Like I'm thinking about this Black Mirror episode where I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, when it's like everything was about rating rated people and something like that. And when they didn't uh, where, where they didn't have that uh, good rating, they couldn't like I don't know get certain jobs or certain services and, and something like that. and it's not far from reality. I have know that the city in China had some similar system when everything was like rated and suddenly that's not information suddenly it's that that it's kind of a nightmare scenario when I always need to put on a fake smile just to get this five star rating and not being myself maybe i'm going uh, away from the subject but mm-hmm. i'm just like this uh, rating it creates lots of uh, conflicting uh, like ideas in my head and like yeah of course i want to get some feedback but i also wasn't had unbiased feedback where these stars aren't i don't know disturbing so uh Sorry about like uh, bringing it into even wider area and maybe not to, uh, a complete answer to your question, but uh, yes.
4: Yeah. yeah. I, 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 sorry if you were done, Boris. I, I realized I wrote some comment I forgot to mention here, uh, that, but thanks for your uh, raising, mentioning this. It uh, uh, sort of reminded me that, that they're, they're like also with these reviews, you, either reviewers who review a product or users, might be people who are not the target audience and that will give you very skewed uh, reviews or ratings of the product they might think they are the target audience but they don't understand it so, so they might review it from an unintended perspective and that uh, can be very uh, confusing so i think that is one of the challenges and it's sort of uh, hard to pinpoint it but you can uh, you can see it at times when somebody's reviewing something, and 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 then for them it's not the product they need. if it's some sort of high end product, usually is targeted to a certain professional, and their needs are very different from the normal consumer. So it could be like a high end camera there, where small details matter a lot for a professional that have no impact so whatsoever on, on someone else. Or you might remove features that uh, and beginning would want to have, but it's just in the way for a professional user. So I think these aspects are quite uh, important. And there might also be this cultural aspect to take into account for how people say, uh, I know in, in the UK or Sweden or Spain, you will if, some, if somebody shows you and they say it's okay, it, that okay meaning can can be uh, mean very different things. There are all these funny memes with what it means. If it's great, it's bad, or it's, it's something else. Uh, and that sort of makes it uh, harder uh, and uh, the worst thing I've seen is some company having like a 10 scale rating and you expect it to be linear and then when you say it, you give a, a, a 6 and then suddenly they remap that in a non-linear way so that it's skewed it to look better than it was the rating which is really uh, unprofessional and uh, should be legal actually uh, so, so I yes. Came to think about that when when you're mentioning about the story thing again Boris so uh, yeah sorry I just wanted to add those
3: <laughs> points
0: no it's no problem thank you for adding them points Roberto I know Daniel I know you wanted to add something as well
3: <laughs> no uh, I'm fascinated by all your comments and what you have shared so on the first part when Axel and Roberto were exp- like reflecting on how the, using user data from your special areas I think it doesn't matter so much what type of industry it is or what type of product it is. What is common is that if you do this at an early stage, you're using it in an explorative way. So you're exploring and then you should do something with those findings and try to give some direction. And that also tells you what is that you need to validate later. So that's a nice thing to see, like these three exploration, strategy, validation, flow, that if you have the right methods, and qualitative or quantitative, and they're coming little by little, then you can really build a story. It's a lot about storytelling at the end, What you uh, so you have a successful way to transmit it as well to the users. Then to comment on the star ratings that I realized it became an interesting topic. Uh, there's some uh, research around it and some statistics that I can share that can be interesting for, uh, for today is that um, when you mention bodies that you, Are a bit lazy to write reviews it's totally true like normally when you find one review one negative review is usually for one person that is typing it you get at least 26 people that experienced the exact same thing but just didn't talk about it or didn't comment it on when they had the chance and normally a person that has a negative experience share the negative experience to between 10 and 15 people. So certainly, if you do the math, you get up to 650 people that gets influenced by one negative review that it's out there online. So that's a big impact of a negative negative comment on a product that gets spread. And if we are able to increase just 0.1, 0.1 star rating on a product, it already increases 20 percent incremental sales and if you manage to position your product to be at least 4.2 stars that product has more eight times more chances to sell than if it's below 4.2 stars so the stars are actually important but again it's not about the statistics The statistics that we should be worried about. It's more about what is behind them. And as I agree completely with you, that is analyzing them in the right way. So we use that information to improve the products and therefore to get better star ratings. So at the end, the star rating is an indicator of quality. And even if you might care or not about the actual stars of a product you're going to buy, you have a product on mind with certain amount of stars, let's say. and then you find another one 4.6 that that's not maybe the brand you're used to maybe not a product you knew but like hold on people seem to like it and then you go and spend time there and maybe it convinces you just because people is having a good experience and talking about it so this is how this is so interesting to bring that data as part of the design process but not only that not base our decisions only on that But as an input. Yeah, really
0: great question and great answer there, Daniel. Um...
3: Regarding to what Roberto said about,
1: um, like, it depends. It's like very personal, uh, especially like who you're asking. But for my experience also, like when you are asking, when you are just released a new feature, it takes time for people to realize what it does or it maybe, uh, maybe updates an older feature that people are used to. So change is often seen as something negative. <laughs> so the positive effect will come after a certain amount of time. So if you measure directly when you, when you introduce that, people are like, okay, what is this? I don't know how to use it. It's confusing. The old one is what's better. Uh, this is, ra- this is uh, crap. Uh, and if you just listen to that, you can get uh, like scared and like, okay, we have to bring back the, the old ones and so on, instead of like, okay, uh, chill, chill out, uh, see how it's like, uh, how, will, how will this look in a couple of weeks or something like that. And then maybe people start realizing, oh, this is quite nice. I just have to adapt my, how I do stuff and so on. Uh, so I just... Uh, sh- <laughs> This is a really funny anecdote that I bring with me. Uh, it was a quote from a user. I, I worked the, as a consultant in a big, really big company here in Sweden that like almost all Swedes use. And the quote was like, "Can you please stop improving the product?" Which meant <laughs> improving in quotation mark that they saw like every other stuff that you just added or changed. It destroyed my flow. I know how to use it. I, I, I am doing it fast, I'm doing it every day and, and if you're messing around with my tool, you destroy my flow. even if it's like actually making stuff better, I need to learn the new stuff. So it's the question is is it actually making stuff better or not? but the question uh, the other question is like should it just freeze in time? <laughs> like th- those two like destroying the flow or not. So that was uh, my uh, addition to Roberto's uh, comment. Okay,
0: really, really interesting question there as well. I know Axel raised his hand whilst you were speaking. Axel, did you want to add something onto what Boris was saying?
2: Um, yeah, I just uh, I really recognize what Boris is saying about um, like the the first impressions of uh, from users when you release a new feature, especially if you have a product that people use uh, daily and maybe several times per day. You're sort of I mean, for for them, it's like when you if you come to their home and you sort of rearrange their furniture in their living room, like you, they they will not recognize themselves and they will get anxious and uh, have a strong reaction to it. And so I think it's really important, as you're saying, Boris, to uh, measure uh, if you're measuring Customer satisfaction or whatever uh, early, then you also need to add that a few weeks later when people have actually gotten used to the new, the new thing. And we spent quite a lot of time and energy actually talking about this in in the organization, um, and talking about change aversion as a concept, and making sure that uh, everyone from the people working with the customer service and management and so on knows that we we can't just um, react really quickly on the first user feedback that we get when
3: we release something, we need to stay calm and um, be patient. That's why actually it's an early input that you bring in, but then you need to test first impressions as well and combine yeah. them and continue the process with that. Yeah. Thank you for your replies.
0: Great, great question. and Obviously, thank you for adding that other question on Boris as well. really appreciate that. And now, moving on to the last question by Roberto. Roberto brought the question to the podcast In what ways do you think the combination of VR and AR technology with personalized AI will shape the practices of user centric design, specifically in creating more immersive and personalized user experience? So, Roberto, where did this question come from?
4: Uh, yes. Um, oh, there's so much more to talk about the previous question. So, I'm sort of <laughs> moving into this question. Uh, For for me, obviously, uh, uh, the inspiration for this is uh, everything I'm hearing about the Apple Vision Pro coming. And uh, it's uh, really fun seeing them uh, sort of gamble into unknown territory with a new product category and raising the bars on on the expected quality. I mean, the Quest 3 headset for Meta uh, I got that as a like a preparation to start exploring uh, doing what can I do with US design in, in 3D VR AR or XR whatever you want to call it and uh, and of course the emergence of AI or machine learning with that it's mostly about more than AI today. And uh, all this uh, for us, of course, getting all this data that you're tra- tracking, uh, how do we sort of cre- cre- keep that pri- privacy in, in, in mind? And uh, yeah, yes, uh, I-, I think there's going to happen more more things now that both hardware and software and um, the common perception of, of the general public is in a very interesting point regarding this. And there but it will have an impact more for very specific uh, professional categories maybe like architects and and uh, interior design uh, artists or of course games but there is probably some sort of uh, things that haven't sort of been invented like uh, when the first iphone came out with the pinch to zoom there uh, it was completely novel and now uh, people are so accustomed to it uh, and the, this obvious uh, learnability that people take a paper map and they try and pinch and zoom so of course my interest is in, in, the, in the near future or or so work and see if i if i can come up with what would be the new pinch to zoom and pan or for, for vr ar and i'm like curious to hear yes your thoughts because it's something happening right now that could be a complete flop or it could be the next uh, step so yeah it's more a, more of a predictive question and hearing your thoughts uh, if anyone else is as excited as I am about it or not
0: <laughs> yeah it's a really intriguing question and obviously like you say we don't know what's going to happen in the future so I'm really excited to hear your thoughts Boris do you want to start
1: yes I was just writing some notes here
0: uh Interesting
1: question, and I think that we definitely as designers need to, to be aware of this and start thinking in those areas and hopefully without too much fear or of being replaced directly by some robot or someone, some kid uh, doing magic with uh, mid-journey or something like that. Uh, so VR, AR, really interesting area, uh, but it's also a bit... Still a big threshold, I think, uh, for everyone, too, because it's the the use cases are not so obvious. Of course, games and uh, Meta tried some kind of, I don't know, this office and so on. But it still feels a bit childish, even if it's uh, maybe going to change with Apple's headset uh, had release now, but that's, like, really expensive. So that, that will be, as in my opinion, uh, in my opinion, it will be a small area for a big time until technology uh, catches up. But it still means that we should at least have pay attention or test it out to see see what is the difference. AI, that's a sneaky little <laughs> thing. It's because it. It is like everywhere. It's like you cannot say any uh, any area that it will not affect. It's like from, I don't know, um, I cannot think of anything. And it's moving so fast. Uh, so I understand that people are either super optimistic or scared to death or maybe somewhere in between. But the, it's so hard to p- put your head around it because it's like no object. It's like It's like, I don't know. Uh, internet, it's everywhere Uh, but there I feel that we need really to step up our game and both to understand the possibilities uh, the challenges, how to adapt to it, how to design with it and design for it uh, and both teach ourselves, teach our users, so that is actually something that is really really um, relevant today and that we are definitely paying attention to so uh, but I don't know. I have not seen so much i don't know design related areas for that. I haven't seen design thinking thinking for or with AI right now, except for making fancy images with uh, midjourney or so on. but I have' not seen like how did how does this kind of uh, how does this help to to uh, improve our design even better to to uh, elevate to a new level uh thanks not so much of an answer more of a elaboration sorry for that
0: well ai in itself is just a whole complete other topic which could have its own podcast on so it is literally very unknown at this point but daniel what's your thoughts on the questions
3: yeah um definitely definitely a challenge that we're all facing how to integrate this more into our daily work and my experience would be more from the side of user testing so if I maybe separate AI from VR for a second, I think uh, starting with AI, one of the key things when we're going to plan and execute a user test is preparing the stimuli. And we often depend on physical samples that they are uh, that we want to give to the test participants to manipulate them with their hands. But sometimes these are very expensive. They take time to be produced. And when they arrive, it's too late in the process. And what we want is to test earlier, faster, iterate. So I think this is when we started to do more like screen based kind of samples. And we're still talking about designers that are working doing 2Ds or 3Ds or renders, photography. But here is exactly where AI can help the designer to speed up. The preparation of the stimuli and be able to to, to test more and test more often. Then on the part of VR, this is another interesting topic, now more related to virtual virtual models, that also we want the the benefit of a virtual model is to bring it as early as possible. But this can be sometimes limited to represent real life, because at the end of the of the day, real life is a multi-sensorial experience. So if you put your Googles on and uh, you you're doing some action you you get to see something something moves but your actions need feedback we did some tests once i remember just to bring an anecdote where we yeah, we recreated the whole machine there but people felt a bit that that was strange what we did was we put the actual sounds we, we we recorded the sounds that they were supposed to get when interacting with this virtual model and suddenly it felt realistic so i i expect that these technologies will continue developing in this direction in really integrating all the senses because at the end of the day the senses do not work separately. They are all linked. And the combination of them is what give you that feeling of reality.
0: Yeah, definitely. I suppose like you say, combination of different senses maybe sort of what is missing at the moment. But absolutely interested to hear your opinion on the subject.
2: Yeah, I'm not sure if it is actually I (laughs) I feel like a true, true amateur on this topic. I know, I know Nothing about VR and AR, really. Um, but I, I think it's really interesting to hear what you guys were saying about it. And I feel like I have some catching up to do on this um, technology and how it will affect um, us designers in, in the future. Um, but I, I'll, I'll share a thought about sort of um, AI and machine learning and uh, how that will affect uh Our UIs in the future, which I I thought about this week actually, where we when we're we're sort of working on a a structural change within our our app, uh, looking at um, navigation and information architecture, and uh, it uh, struck me that uh, the way we've been uh, taught to, or like the way we used to do, like big um, information architecture. um type of projects where we map content into different navigational structures and making sure that it fits the mental model of the users and re- arranging things in a certain way i think that's i don't know if we'll be doing that for uh, much longer when we uh, as we get much better at personalizing experience and making sure that uh, The users uh we know what the users uh, want when they come to our product and we can actually uh suggest the right thing for them the right type of content or the right type of next action while and and when we don't when the user has an intent that we couldn't really um tap into for some reason we i think will rely much more on uh user input in form of text and speech rather than uh the user navigating through um, our uh, a UI structure to find what they want. So I think that was an, an interesting uh, thought for me this week. So I, I just wanted to share it with you guys. Uh, a little bit off topic, but uh, I, I didn't have anything better to add here.
0: No, thank you for adding that, Axel. Obviously, it's really interesting to hear how people are sort of implementing it in their current workday and obviously using it in design at the moment. So thank you for that. Roberto, do you have any final thoughts? Uh
4: yes uh, yes yes to wanted to share some of the things I've been thinking about this recently and 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 specifically about the combination of XR and AI and how it can help so uh, I, I thought of a scenario that maybe better explains it it's like say that you're you need to repair a car and you have this headset that's good enough so you have full full resolution of what you're seeing and you can experience and, and and you can have this floating menu and it can mark out like parts in the car like here is the uh, and it's sort of guiding you and detecting and uh, the AI can analyze and see it. so uh, so even if you then it says oh you have to unscrew these things it will actually track it in 3D. So if you put one of the screws on the right side and then you're gonna assemble it it can remind you how oh, you put them there. So it's like spatially aware of of what you're doing and and uh, even reminding you I oh, disconnect this cable before that because otherwise it's dangerous or things like that. And it could even be done like in surgery. I've heard of cases where they even forget tools inside a person when they screw them back together. Which is terrible but having some ai combined with like, 3d tracking and seeing what's happening it could we know today already that machine learning is uh, improving a lot in and doing like x-ray analysis of different types of cancer or, or problems and it's just a short matter of time before it will do it better than any human so even just doing surgery while it's it might just look at the different organs you're seeing and say oh by the way you're doing this but uh, have a look at that or something so I think there's this this future that is not too far away uh, considering how fast AI is run, uh, moving ahead or machine learning. Uh, and uh, when we reach the performance levels enough for, for creating really realistic and uh, real-time analyzing the 3D world around us. So I think that's going to be a revolution in some areas and have no impact at all in other areas. So, so I was just... Uh, Wanting to share and bounce some of these visionary ideas, <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, because I know, yes, AI and the machine learning itself is a big topic. So, I was thinking more of this combination of, of what that can lead to. So, yeah. But, uh, but so, a really interesting
0: question, though, Roberto. Definitely really interesting question. Robert, did you want to add one last thing before we wrap up the podcast?
1: <clears throat> okay, I keep this short. Uh, super interesting question. And uh, tying, thing, tying to back to the uh theme, uh, like the user experience, and how we feel it, uh, like, keep it in the center and at the heart of of everything. That everything that we design now, that will be released in near future, needs to take AI in consideration uh, in one way or another. Uh, Because we are just like, I'm designing, um, functioning for for, um, for uh, teachers to hand out assignments and for, for students to do that. It feels like a really simple way to do it, but if you consider AI in a year when this is done or released and to the customers, it will be a completely different ballgame. So what questions uh, should we ask instead uh, to improve the user experience? And that is like, how can we uh, diminish the boring t- stuff <laughs> and how can we maximize the superpowers uh, to to like empower users with help of AI? And I don't know that is not like AI podcast, but it's still like so so it's it's kind of a material that you use uh, instead and 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 take it in the in, in the like power of the user experience and how can you really really take that to the next level? Uh, so that was were my final words.
0: Thank you for that, Boris. Thank you for adding your final words. definitely amazing. And thank you again to all of our guests for joining me on this podcast. So they've been Boris, Head of Design at EdAda, Axel, who is a Manager of UX and Design at Avanza; Daniel, who does Research by Design at Electrolux, and Roberto, who is a Lead UX UI Designer at Ericsson. So if you or anyone you know would like to join us on our podcast in the future, just reach out to me. My name is Shania and thank you for joining me on this podcast. Speak to you soon.